This is Top Floor, episode 74. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 74. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast right up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is a study in what seem like contradictions. Trisha Perez Keneally grew up Jewish in Puerto Rico before moving to New England in middle school. She has a bachelor's in government, an MBA, and two culinary degrees from Le Cordon Bleu in London. And Trisha is the hands-on owner and culinary educator at the Inn on Hastings Park while maintaining an extremely busy and close family life. While many of us spend years working in hotels and restaurant careers, dreaming of owning our own place, Trisha opened the Inn in 2013, having never worked in a hotel. Today, Trisha and I are going to talk about on-the-job training, how she provides a personal experience for each guest, and what it's like to cook New York Strip on a soundstage. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for burning questions from the public at large. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Phineas, who wants to know... This is such a good question for you. How can I break the news to my family that I hate being a lawyer and want to pursue my passion for spirits as a mixologist and bar owner? Wow, it sounds so familiar, Trisha. What do you think? I think the most important thing is to be direct, be to the point, and get on with it. (laughs) I think that so many of us have passions People who work in the hospitality industry are passionate people. And I think when you speak to most of us, you'll find out that there was a moment or there was an experience that spoke to them that resonated with them. And I think, unfortunately, because we don't hold the professional attributes of hospitality in the same regard that cultures do around the world. I think a lot of times people think that working in a restaurant or working at a hotel is a pastime or it's a stepping stone to another career. I'm using it to pay for this type of education, but it truly is a professional career. And the sooner that you recognize it as such and that you want to follow your passion and that you are well-suited to doing it because you've educated yourself, you've made yourself the best mixologist, or you've made yourself the best psalm, or you are just the most incredible person at running a front desk, the better off you're going to be. So I'm all about own it. If this is what you want to do, be the best mixologist that you could possibly eat. I totally agree. The other thing I would say to Phineas is... I would share this information as uh, letting you know from that mindset versus from a looking for your approval or asking your permission mindset. I think a lot of people get into this thing where they're 
family helps them pay for higher education that they then don't want to use and they feel like they're backfooted for the rest of their lives, don't be. You only get one. You got to do what you want to do. So speaking of all of this, the first chapter of your career, Trisha, was as an investment banker. What did you like about that profession and what made you leave it? What I loved about my investment banking profession is that I got to work with some very intelligent people in terms of my colleagues, as well as my clients. I was working for a firm that specialized in high tech. And at the time, it was really the beginning of the internet boom. So I was working with entrepreneurs who had developed technologies, had patents for things that truly make the internet what it is today. So I got to learn so much about cutting-edge technology. I also learned an incredible amount about what true customer service is all about. Because the people that I was working with were often at a critical juncture in their company's histories. It could be exciting. It could be stressful. And I really had to work hand in hand with them to reassure them that everything was going to be okay. The other thing that my investment banking career afforded me was the opportunity to travel all over the world. And it gave me a lot of experience as a consumer of hospitality. So a lot of those experiences that I had as a very frequent flyer, a very frequent guest in hotels, was a definitive perspective of what I wanted my hotel and my hospitality experience to be like for my guests. So what made you leave? What made me leave is I always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. My father was an entrepreneur, started his own company when he was in his late 20s. And I always knew that I wanted to have my own business. What wasn't so clear was what that business was going to entail. And as time went on, my passion for food, my passion for teaching people about food, my passion for hospitality, it just kept it kept coming back to the top again and again and again. What are some of the ways that you bring your Puerto Rican Jewish heritage to life in your menus? So there's a Yiddish word called chutzpah, which kind of means like, you know, being bold and like having... Like, you can say ballsy, it's fine. <laughs> um, well, I would say have cojones, um, mm. like like we do in Spanish. Um, and so I think that one word people would use to describe me is authentic. So I think that I bring that authenticity to what we do in terms of our food. There are times that we celebrate my Jewish heritage by having, you know, at Hanukkah, we have sufganiyot, which are, uh, they're Israeli jelly donuts. So we have those on the menu. But instead of filling them with what Israelis traditionally fill them with strawberry. We fill them with guava or with passion fruit because that resonates to me as somebody who's a Puerto Rican. I'm so incredibly proud of both sides of my family. And I love being able to share that with our guests through the foods that I love to eat myself, either at home or when I'm entertaining. I love that idea of making something from one side and then adding an ingredient from the other side. I think that's really cool. This is crazy, Trisha. You are 
a also a championship ballroom dancer. When I read that, when I was researching, I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so you're a dancer, you're a cyclist, and you're a marathon runner in addition to being an entrepreneur. How do you think the physical, sort of your interest in physical activities informs the cerebral or mental parts of the work that you do? So I think I've come to realize over the course as I've gotten older that I have ADHD. (laughs) And I think that women, it, it manifests itself in women very differently. And actually an incredibly large number of female entrepreneurs do have ADHD and they've learned to sort of harness that. And for me, the physical activity, especially activities that are challenging, you know, like ballroom dancing, like being able to bike long distances. I wouldn't call it running. I would call it jogging as they do in the movie, (laughs) as, you know, Will Farrell refers to it in Anchorman, um, jogging a marathon. I think they help sort of keep me focused. And I also think that... It's also about the mental ability to set a physical challenge for yourself and be able to overcome it. And in some ways, being an entrepreneur is all about identifying challenges and being able to work through it. And you have to keep yourself mentally and physically strong, I think, to do it well. I often tell people it's really important to put your oxygen mask on first. You know, when you travel, they always tell you that. And for me, the physical activity, that's my oxygen, right? That's my oxygen. So that's the way I sort of keep myself focused, keep myself in shape and, you know, keep sort of teaching my team and my family, to be honest, the importance of always having ambitious goals. I love that. I love the idea that a challenge, a physical challenge can build confidence that can then sort of overflow into other parts of your life. I need to remember that when I am trying to fight with myself about actually exercising. You appeared on Beat Bobby Flay last year. When I watched your episode, I couldn't believe how relaxed and confident that you were. We could probably spend the whole episode talking about this appearance on this show. But will you talk a little bit about how you got on the show and what it was like? It was an opportunity of a lifetime, right? To be able to watch, you know, I've watched Bobby Flay, had long been an admirer of his cooking even before he became a celebrity chef. What he does, like being able to get on there and do all of these, you know, compete using all sorts of different cuisines, recipes. And so I was actually quite surprised when we got the call and I did a series of interviews with their producers. We talked about what potentially would be the dishes. You know, we came up with, you know, I proposed several and it was a really fun experience. The only thing was that it was in the middle of COVID. It was September of 2021 when we filmed. And so it's my understanding, Bobby was totally gracious, really friendly, But I think that he was a little bit constrained because of the COVID parameters. So I would have liked to have been able to interact with him more. But everyone was super friendly on set, extremely professional. It takes about 
six or seven hours to do the episode. So again, that stamina and being able to stay focused, those are things that are really helpful, but it was a great opportunity. That's amazing to me that it takes that long. Do you do the cook more than once? No, the cook you do once. The the cooking, like your, your timed cooking, you do it once, but it's more you know, the walking in sort of some of the intros, some of the different things that take a little bit longer, but it's really well done. It's incredible. The Their production team is top notch. The facilities, super easy to work in. We do it again in a heartbeat. I watched a lot of tape, but probably didn't focus on sort of the important thing. There is always something that's a twist. And it's not, it, it, it's subtle. It's about technique. Those New York strips, you Cooking a New York strip in 20 minutes is not an easy thing. They were humongous too. They were humongous, right? And so the other thing that I was a little bit frustrated by is they they specifically said to us, the production team, focus on the ingredient. And so my steak was actually cooked perfectly. It looked delicious. And I had timed it because I knew that they were, it, it would sit for like, five or 10 minutes, which is the ideal thing that you want for a steak as they were waiting to judge it. And so what they didn't like was that I didn't give them enough chimichurri. I'm like, but the steak was perfectly (laughs) cooked. So, but that's the thing is that there's always like a twist, right? So maybe I could have cut the steaks in half, right? And made them smaller, right? So that I wouldn't have been so worried about the steak. But I learned, and if I ever get invited back, Sometimes they invite people back. I'll be more prepared. Excellent. Excellent. You opened the inn on Hastings Park in Lexington, Massachusetts. So just right outside of Boston, 10 years ago in 2013. You were armed with two Le Cordon Bleu diplomas, a Harvard MBA, and no hotel experience at all. Talk about some of the on-the-job training that you did and where you think you may have made a couple of mistakes. So in terms of on-the-job training, I think it's critical for entrepreneurs to be very self-aware and know what they don't know how to do. So obviously, I was new to this business. So I purposely went out and hired people who I thought were best of class for their job. So the people that were working with me, my general manager had been a general manager at another Relay and Chateau property. And I aspire to be part of this group called Relay and Chateau, which we will talk about a little bit more. I went out and hired people that worked at properties that I admired in the Boston area. I had three people on my team that had worked at the Boston Harbor Hotel. And I made it my business to work alongside them and understand their jobs. I am very big on hiring people. It was the same thing when I was in investment banking. I hire people who want my job, right? Because if you want my job, then you're going to work really hard to get that job. And so I am proud of the fact that we have had a lot of people that have been with us for eight, nine years. You know, I have some people that have been with us since the beginning. That's a pretty incredible feat in the hospitality industry. I mean, it's incredible just that you've stayed open, to be perfectly honest. Well, it's true. It's much more difficult as an independent, right? It takes five years for an independent property to kind of reach that that 
potential. I think the mistake that I made in the beginning, we're a luxury property and I should have just owned that from the beginning. And I should have been a little bit more comfortable with the fact I'm delivering a premium luxury service and there's a price for that. Got it. So do you think that you underpriced yourself a little bit or just that you felt funny about it? I think that we did underprice in the beginning. I think that I was so focused on occupancy. But in my in my world, what I really should have been focused on was ADR and recognizing that the cost of the room based on the service that we were giving, if I was going below a certain dollar amount, that I just should have said, you know what? We're not going to sell the room. That it was better for us to be at a lower occupancy rate at a much higher ADR. And that's something that I'm really happy that we've sort of rectified because I feel that the quality of the service, whether it be the caliber of our rooms, whether it be the amenities that we offer, but even more importantly, it's those special touches. Like I really do know my guests. You mentioned Relay and Chateau, and I know you got that status within the first year of opening, which is pretty impressive. Could you explain what that hotel collection is and how being a member impacts your operation? So Relay and Chateau is a marketing association that was started in France. There are over 550 members around the world. And in order to be included in Relay and Chateau, you have to be invited to apply. And the application is probably about 30 pages. And then there's a corresponding set of standards that you have to adhere to. And you get evaluated on for acceptance into the group, invitation into the group. But then you have to adhere to those standards year in and year out. So for an independent property, it provides a great framework for establishing standards for your team. Very similar to the Forbes standards, right? There's over 300 Forbes standards that you have to adhere to and you get inspected once or twice a year to adhere to those standards. And I think it's really a useful tool as an independent hotelier to have those types of standards. I know Julia Child is one of your heroes, maybe your biggest hero. And like her, you are a culinary educator at the inn. You host immersive culinary weekends and supper club kind of cooking classes. What is appealing to you about the teaching part of culinary and teaching your guests about food and wine? The most appealing part to me of being a culinary educator is that if I teach you how to do this, then you can bring that joy and passion home with you and you can share it with your family and friends. I think one of my favorite things since I was a child was being able to gather with family and friends around food. And so often these days, people don't know how to do that. They don't know how to cook. And I just think that that's a shame. It's a waste. And I love being able to share something that I love so much and share it with people in a way that's really accessible. It's really fun sometimes to watch the Food Network and see some of these celebrity chefs. But sometimes I think that people find some of the recipes to be intimidating. What I want to do is make it accessible and let them know that there's things that they could do that would completely impress their family and friends 
with a little bit of technique, a little bit of technique goes a really long way. This sounds like a good time to take a break. When we return, Trisha is going to attempt to teach me how to cook and tell me a ghost story. Be right back. Top Floor is sponsored in part by the Hunter Hotel Investment Conference, taking place March 21st through 23rd at the Atlanta Marriott Marquis. Hunter brings together the hotel industry's most influential leaders and investors for networking opportunities and insightful sessions on hospitality trends. Deals are built on meaningful relationships, and Hunter is where these relationships are made and deals get done. For more information, visit hunterconference.com. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with a couple of really practical and specific tips they can try either in their businesses or their personal lives. So I've got a couple of each for you. If someone is thinking about following in your footsteps and opening an inn or a bed and breakfast, this is a very popular dream for hotel employees. What are the two or three most important things that we haven't touched on yet that she should do to be successful? I think it's very important to remember that this is a 24-7 business. That doesn't mean that you need to be there 24-7. But it does mean that you need to hire people that you know will follow through in the way that you want it to be handled if you are not there in that moment of time. And so you can have a 24-7 business, but don't have to be there 24-7. But the quality of your hiring is really important. If you are buying a small property, you have to understand that you are not going to have the revenue to hire a ton of staff. So it's something that you really need to think about. How much time do you want to be dedicating to the business because the irony is the smaller the business, probably the more time you're going to have to spend there. What about you? How much time do you spend at the end these days? So the inn is a mile and a half from my house. I have a phenomenal management team. So it all depends on the day, right? Because a lot of the, the things that I do in terms of managing my team, like I can get snapshots. You know, I get up in the morning and I'm looking... You know, I don't even get out of bed and I've like looked at my phone and I can tell what happened yesterday. I'm looking at end of shift notes from both the restaurant and the hotel. So oftentimes by the time my managers get up, they will have received a message for me because I saw something, I liked something, I didn't like something, I want something to be followed up on. And then it all depends on what we have on the docket. Right. If we have a big event, if we have multiple events going on, if we have a lot of check ins, if someone, one of my managers isn't there. But, you know, I tend to plan my schedule out sort of weeks in advance based on what I know is coming from, you know, looking at my BEO runs, looking at occupancy. So I kind of have a sense of what's, what's coming down the pike. Understood. You have an Instagram series where you answer questions that people are perhaps embarrassed to ask about cooking. So I'm going to ask you one of mine. My husband does 99% of the cooking in our house. I don't think I'm a terrible cook, but I am not a passionate cook and he is. 
One of my biggest challenges is feeling confident that I have cooked meat long enough. Now, I understand thermometers, but there is a second part of this. I have a tendency to cook it and sort of psych myself out. So I'm like, okay, don't touch it. Let it get a sear. Let it get a char. Let it happen. Let it happen. Cut it open and then start to get freaked out. So it's too late to do the temperature because I think I'm fine. I'm approaching it with confidence. And then I psych myself out. Of course, this is a terrible cooking method and probably makes you want to gag. But what do you recommend? (laughs) So I think the important one of the important things about cooking meat, especially in the United States, is that I think that we actually... It might start at the beginning, right? In terms of, okay, is your pot hot enough? Like, is that pan hot enough? Okay. Because the other thing that you can sort of tell like, okay, is the meat cooking right is whether or not it's sticking to the pan. So when you're trying to get that sear and you try to turn it, do you sometimes find that the meat is sticking? Mm -hmm. That means it's not ready to be turned yet. If you're fighting with it. What? That's so good to know. Even that is the lesson I need in this moment. You need to give it a little bit more time. You need to make sure that that is high. I would take some time. You may have already done it, but, and I'm happy to send you some reference recipes. Take a look at the joy of cooking. Take a look at Julia Child. They do a very good job sort of describing like what that process should look like. The challenge with most cooking is that we think it looks wrong right before it's right. Yes, that's exactly it. This is exactly what you're talking about. Okay, so... If it's fighting with you, it means it has not heated up enough. So once it's like not fighting with you, flip it, okay? And then that thermometer, do not cut the meat open, okay? But I always think, oh, it's fine, it's fine. And then... Because you know what happens? You know what's happening when you're cutting the meat? All protein needs to rest, okay? So the problem is, is if you're cutting the meat open to check it, all of that all of the juice is going to come out of it, right? Because the proteins haven't come back together. So they just go, you know, your viewers can't see that I'm making this expansive (laughs) arm motion. And that's the expansive arm motion for all the juice and flavor flowing out of the meat, okay? The thermometers actually do work. The thermopens are great. And for my young cooks, I make my young cooks use them. It drives me bananas when I'm driving, like coming through and I'm like, did you Mm -hmm. check it? Did you check it? And I don't mean like cut it open. I'm like, okay, take the thermopen. Another trick is using your hand, like the understanding, like developing that sense of what it should feel like for the different terms, like for medium rare, rare, right? Like a really clenched fist, like where the your thumb meets the thing, your index finger, you know, like you make that C. Really hard clenched fist, that's well done. If it's relaxed, it's rare. If it's sort of semi, it's medium rare. So use the thermopen, check it, touch it, and then give yourself that reference so you're developing a frame of reference. And please, 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 do not cut that meat open until it's rested for five minutes. <laughs> 
at least. Okay. Listen, I think I'm going to... And if you need to have me on FaceTime <laughs> and we can do it together one time, I'm happy to do it. And I mean that. I really Thank mean that. Thank you. I may need to stick to being the vegetable chef in the family uh, because it, when my no, husband... you could do no, this. No, I know. But when my husband hears this episode, he's never going to let me touch a pork chop again. <laughs> Um, as an independent property, the inn on Hastings Park can't rely on marketing from big brands to get the word out to guests. Aside from word of mouth, what are some of the marketing tactics that you've tried? And particularly, of course, those that have been the most successful? I think the most effective tool for marketing the inn has been for me to tell the story. Because it is such a personal story and it's a story that is incredibly passionate. It's about following your dream. And I think that a lot of travel is about following your dream, right? We dream of going to different places. So it's a great intersection because I think people are inspired by the story and then they're inspired to come and you know, experience a dream that they might have that's related to travel. So I will go anywhere and everywhere and talk about what I do and about the inn and about my team. So that's been really an incredible opportunity for me. So it's it's really just sharing the story of how the inn came to be. Good to know. We have reached the fortune-telling portion of the program. So now's the time when you predict the future and cast some spells, wave your magic wand, whatever you got. What is a prediction that you have for the future of luxury lodging? I think that luxury lodging is only going to become more personalized and more hands-on. I think that... People really missed being able to be together and in company with other people and to be... We did a lot of taking care of ourselves over the course of the last three years. And I think that people do have an appetite for being able to go somewhere and have somebody else pamper them and take care of them the way that they would like to be. Because we certainly are all capable of taking care of ourselves, but it's a treat to be able to go and just relax and to be able to experience someone taking care of you in a way that you wouldn't necessarily do at home. If you could wave a magic wand and eliminate one challenge in your business, what would it be? Staffing shortages, but it's kind of a combination. I'm going to wave my wand twice. (laughs) I'm going to wave my wand. You can do what you want. There you go. (laughs) The fairy godmother. I want to eliminate the staffing shortages, but I also want people in the United States to recognize that hospitality and tourism are are a very important part of our economy and that it's a very important investment for us to make to make sure that we have employees that are well-trained and take pride and can compete with the best of uh, the best hospitality professionals around the world because in other countries there's a much stronger tradition and the dedication that they have to educating those professionals is sort of beyond what we have in the United States. We're very lucky to have some schools that do it very very well. 
But I think that there's a lot of opportunity for us to do a better job, especially training the people who work in the luxury properties. What is next for you and what's next for your company? What is next for me is I have been working on a cookbook memoir about the experience of opening an inn and sort of what it means the experience has meant to me in terms of the inn, you know, we're getting ready, you know, we're going to be, we're going to be in double digits, right? So we need to keep on going and sort of really, again, pushing that luxury, that luxury aspect. And what I mean by that is really pushing the envelope on how personalized we are with our service, with our guests. Can you think of an example of what pushing the envelope looks like for a particular guest? Yes. I'll give an example. Uh, We have one of our guests who's been staying with us since we opened had to have surgery last week. And so she lives in Connecticut. She came up. Her son lives right near the inn. She stayed with us the night before her surgery. And then she came back to us after she'd had her surgery. And my, my front desk manager made sure, you know, we, we had soups, we had all sorts of food ready for her. You know, we had stuff that would work for her given the surgery that she had just had. And what I love about that, you know, that's something like, that's something that that's what we do, right? If we know that you need something special like that, we're going to make sure that that's all taken care of so that when you are back at the end, all she needed to focus on was healing and getting better. But we made sure that there was the right food for her given what she had gone through. That's great. That's a great example. Okay, folks, before we tell Trisha goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Trisha, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? So one of the things that or stories or things I would ask you about on the loading dock at the end is if you've met any of our ghosts. What? So I, I've had a few sort of encounters, but some of the members of my team could tell you stories about things moving in the, like things being in different places in the kitchen, sort of walking through like at certain times and sort of, sort of feeling, but it's, become a big source of conversation when people are taking a break, like if something had happened the night before about the ghosts at the end. (laughs) This is like the most craziest loading dock part ever. What experience have you had? Well, it's sort of... What's interesting is that I... From the moment I first walked into the building and looked at the property... I had this very strong feeling like that I belonged in this building, right? That it just, the building felt very comfortable to me. And the buildings have a, an incredible history. They were built in the 1800s. A variety of people have lived in the building. And a lot of the people who lived in the main house and in the barn were people who really cared about Lexington. And so also the name, the woman who the inn is named for, Mariah Carey Hastings, they also talk about her ghost 
walking around the neighborhood that she lived in, which is right on the other side of town. So I think that what it is, is that I have an incredibly passionate team. Like they love what they do. They're so genuine. And sometimes I think the people who have lived in the building before us come and lend a hand. It also is probably helped by the fact that the barn was a joiner's barn. That means it's a carpenter's barn. And they used to make caskets. Wow. So you probably have a lot of traffic there, right? I mean, it wasn't like they, you know, they would take the caskets to where they needed to be, but it's just, it's, I just think it's funny. And the woman, there's another woman, Ellen Dana, who also plays in the history of the inn and her portrait hangs in our living room. And it's a portrait of her as a child. And she, people talk about that wherever they are in the room, they feel that she's watching them. <laughs> it's all very, it's very calm and nurturing. It's not, not scary. It, 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 I know that it's not scary. It's more, we're here. We're here to help. We're here to take care of you. Have your guests ever had a ghost encounter? There's some, some of our guests have, have said that they have sort of felt, but I think that, that that's also, we have guests, you know, the woman that I was talking to us, she has probably stayed with us 40 or 50 times. Oh, wow. Right. And so the ghosts know her now and are just like, hey, girl, welcome back. Glad to see you. <laughs> and a lot of our guests are very particular, like they want like their particular room. Right. And there's elements of the architecture that we preserved from when these buildings were built. So it's all good. That is so interesting. I'm trying to picture a scenario in which I would have what I thought was an encounter with a ghost and feel calm and cool and collected about it. Much like your experience on Beat Bobby Flay, you are just unflappable and it's pretty impressive. Trisha Perez Keneally, thank you so much for being here. I know our listeners learned a lot about opening and in, and I really appreciate you writing up to the top floor. Thank you. Be well. And thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 74. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 